Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Religion. I'm your host, Christian Peterson. In every program, we look at a new book that is especially interesting, and we chat with the author of that book. Today, I had the pleasure of talking with Abdelkader Tayyub, professor of religion at the University of Cape Town, South Africa. His new book, Religion in Modern Islamic Discourse, explores the notion of religion through several modern Muslim intellectuals. Often, modern Islam is seen not necessarily as a return to religion, but of a continuation of tradition. I mean to say, Islam is commonly understood as resistant to modernity and incompatible with contemporary secular societies. Tayyib's new book, Religion in Modern Islamic Discourse, he challenges this perception through various analytical vignettes of key figures and debates occurring over the past hundred years or so. Professor Tayyub employs religion not as an essential category of examination, but rather as a guiding mode through which he explores several Muslim debates about identity, science, politics, law, gender. The characters involved in these dialogues span across the globe from South Asia, the Middle East, and North America, and give voice to both male and female perspectives. We are left with a nuanced examination of modern Islamic thought, which has been carefully contextualized in a critical, disruptive, and engaging way. Overall, he presents a wonderful thematic resource for understanding the adaptation and resistance to modernity as Muslims begin to reconcile Islam with the forces of modernization and secularization. And now, here's the interview. Good morning. Welcome to New Books in Religion. This is your host, Christian Peterson. And today, I have the the pleasure of talking with Abdelkader Tayyub, a professor of religion at the University of Cape Town, South Africa. Good morning, Abdelkader. How are you? Hello, good morning. Um, so today we're going to be talking about his new book, Religion in Modern Islamic Discourse. Uh, this, this, this is another new book by uh, the partnership between Columbia and Hearst on uh, modern Muslim intellectuals. Um, in Abdelkader's case, we... We are taken through uh, the 19th and 20th century, various debates about identity, gender, politics, and the role religion plays in all of, it, all of these. Um, but f- before we get into the book, uh, Abdelkader, can you just tell us about yourself and uh, some of your background? Yeah, okay. Thank you very much, first of all, for having me. And uh, yes, I'm, I'm born in South Africa. Um, I'm born in a, I, was, I grew up in a very small town, uh, very far from Cape Town. But I've had the privilege of uh, being educated in a number of places. Uh, first started in South Africa. Uh, I then had the opportunity to uh, learn some more Arabic in Saudi Arabia in the early 1980s. Uh, before eventually coming to Temple University to Philadelphia, where I spent uh, four, four or five years uh, doing a doctorate. Um, so, and but since then, I've been back in South Africa. I've um, uh, been teaching at the University of Cape Town uh, for as long as I can remember. 
but in between, I've had the opportunity of going to a, going as a visiting professor to different places, um, back to America, but also recently much more extensively in Europe. Uh, in, in particular, I, um, when I, this, this book, this particular book started when I was in, in the Netherlands uh, for about four years, and uh, since then it has uh, sort of developed and, and well. In 2010, uh, it became a book. Yeah, I've actually I've been following your work on uh, religion and Islam pretty closely, and I, I noticed that you've taken various perspectives and approaches throughout the years. Um, how did you come to write uh, this book um, in in the in the, the the form you have right now? Yeah, uh, that's a good question. I think that I can mention specifically two major influences. Um, or maybe just, you know, promptings. And I've realized that I do things differently, but uh, I think that the, the, the influences have shaped my decision. Um, so the first one is uh, Talal Asad, whose work I've been following for a long time, I think from the 1980s onwards, particularly when he was, has been writing about religion and the construction of the religion in relation to the, sacred, to the, to the secular. Uh, so his book, Genealogies of Religion, and then later the book on uh, formations of the secular have been quite influential. I just thought it is, for me, it was quite an interesting uh, idea to, sit, to, 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 to dislodge uh, religion as a stable category. Um, so that's, that Talal Asad has been a major influence on me. Uh, on the other hand, my colleague in the department, David Chilister, uh, I don't think I quote him as much, but I've been uh, also been uh, very much uh, re- reading him extensively, and I also have the opportunity uh, to talk to him also about things. Said so he has been looking at uh, re- the construction of religion on the frontier, on the colonial frontier. So religion as not uh, um, sort of being a neutral category, but somehow uh, produced in in a colonial encounter was something that was uh, very attractive to me. So with those two ideas, with that background, I've sort of, I've, I've uh, you know, gone, I, I thought that, um, I thought Talal Asad was not doing as much on Islam, so I thought I could do something. Um, I know he speaks about Islam, but I think he's, he has much more to say about the development of religion in Europe rather than the, in, in the Islamic societies. And he sort of touches and he's very suggestive about what, what one can see in, uh, in Islamic context, particularly there's an interesting essay of his information of the secular where he speaks about uh, Muslims in, uh, at least modernist Muslims as such. But I wanted to depart from him because I didn't agree with some of his, some of his, uh, some of his analyses as such. But I think that it's, I still count him as a, as a major influence in my work. Um. Great. There, there's a few things you uh, touch upon kind of to set the book up. Um, and, and one of these premises uh, you discuss in the introduction is you talk about how intellectual histories of modern Muslims um, can challenge these cultural interpretations of Islam. Um, could you discuss how, how, those do, how that does that? Yes, um, I think that... Um, I think that the way to begin, I think, to look at that is to, to look at the, uh, I think, the, the dominant, or rather say the predominant approaches to the study of modern Islam, which I think, you know, the, the first one is the, the, the understanding that there is a continuity of Islam, um, that, the, that uh, um, you know, modern Muslims, Muslims who live in modernity are not really modernized. I mean, they, they, they're not, they're not really producing something very different. 
different. And if they're producing something different, they're not affecting a very large numbers of large numbers of Muslims. So there, I'm, in, I'm obviously thinking about people like Bernard Lewis and earlier von Grunebaum and others who studied early Islamic texts and basically look at modern uh, Muslim representations of Islam and saying they haven't really, there isn't really something major, uh, very, very different in a way. I mean, even when they look at Muslim modernists, they say basically that they don't really depart, depart from, you know, um, uh, standard definitions of Islam. They might differ on a few things, but they accept the structure uh, as such. Um, on the other hand, I think there have been others who, there have been, others who have been saying that actually, uh, Muslims, um, one, one cannot understand Islam, or one cannot understand modern Muslims only from a cultural perspective. One has to understand them in terms of their contextual location. So when you look at Muslims in, the, in, in America, or when you look at them in North Africa or South Africa, um, it's very difficult to begin to think of them um, as, uh, you know, speaking one language as such. So, um, so therefore, they, are, they obviously don't speak the language of, you know, of the past, but nowadays they are much more influenced by uh, contextual developments, developments of modern societies, I mean, globalization, they are affected by modern state formations. And so therefore, they basically, uh, usually I think they play a role in, uh, deconstructing the kind of universalist claim, the kind of claims that are made by uh, by, by people like uh, Bernard Lewis. So, if if you say, for example, that um, modern Muslims don't really accept the idea of a nation state, I mean, this is a very popular statement. That at the end of the day, the Ummah, the the global Muslim community, really represents the also the political community for Muslims. Uh, then I think contextualists will actually show you that you know nationalism has actually played a very big role in the history of modern Islam, and Muslims have actually contributed to the formation of uh, Turkish nationalism or Arab nationalism or even South Asian or Pakistani nationalism as such. So I'm coming in somehow in between this, and I'm actually saying that I think contextualism is an important um, you know response to those who claim that there is no such thing as a modern Muslim nationalism, but I think that they're not going far enough to say that there is something that modern Muslims are actually sharing across the boundaries. Uh, they, is a, the encounter with modernity is, is, is helping them to share a discourse, which I call a discourse, a kind of a language that they easily understand with each other. Uh, this language is not, is not, it's not a coherent theology, but it is a set, set of, it consists of uh, patterns um, of thinking about the state, thinking about gender, thinking about identity that I think is, a, is shared across, across the boundaries. So I think that looking at intellectual history is, is I, I still think it's fairly underdeveloped. I mean, there have been a number of things, but the more I look at it, I'm, I'm still, I'm still um, dissatisfied with, um, with uh, you know, on the one hand, people saying that you know, uh, if you study an alim or if you study a religious scholar today, uh, you have to link it out, link him whether he's a Sunni or a Shia or he's a Hanafi or a Shafi. I don't. Uh, I think that those things, you know, may may make uh, are, are somewhat important. But I think in addition to the fact that the person is a Sunni or a Shafi or a Salafi, there is some new element in the modern uh, understanding of of that term that has crept into it or that has been cultivated. I'm mentioning two. One of them, I said, it has been actively cultivated. That's try, started to say in the book. 
But I think that one can also speak about how modernity or modernism has somehow affected the discourse, which is actually changed significantly. So I'm sort of talking to the contextualists and actually saying that you're missing a kind of a language that Muslims are sharing. I don't deny that Muslims in Pakistan or India or South Africa are very different. There are lots of different, different important variations. But I'm also addressing the, uh, the, the sort of the, you know, people who speak about the universal ummah only and speak about the continuity and actually challenging them that there is something that is new within modern Islam. And it is, I think, the intellectual history which has to uh, has a lot more to do uh, in, in order to uncover uh, that, that difference as such. Yeah, and this, this relates um, to another thing you, you introduce us to is uh, this relationship between uh, d- when you're defining religion, you're also defining secularism. Um, and you, you kind of situate your discussion within this discourse too. Can you, can you explain that? Yes, I think so. I think, that's, I think it's quite, uh, that's a good question. Um, certainly, I mean, we know, um, as I said with Al-Asad, that the, the dominant discourse is we no longer think about religion as secular as stable categories. We no longer think of them as, well, that's secular, that's religion. But they are, they, they, these terms are, and these, these discourses are of, of the secular. How secular is, is, a con, is constructed in political or in social, uh, in social life just as much as the religion is constructed. Um, so, in a way, the history of uh, the, the emergence of religion, of the idea of religion, the idea of the secular as distinct spheres, uh, is a product of history. It's not something that is, um, you know, that that that, that one, one one would expect to see everywhere in the same way. Now, I'm taking that insight, and that comes from Talal Asad and people like uh, Tim Fitzgerald and also um, David Chidester, and I'm applying it to Islam. Now, I'm aware of the fact that. Um, gen- and I think that generally that uh, the tradition is to say, well, actually there isn't something called secular in Muslim discourse. Uh, there isn't something called religion because if one looks at the history of the term in Christian, in the emergence of uh, Christianity or the emergence of the medieval church, uh, you don't get something comparable like that in Islam. Well, I'm saying, well, that is that is well and good, but I think that in in uh, that uh, when one looks at modernity, um, that. There is a secular sphere that um, begins to impose itself, or I mean, if one takes it as an imposition on the one hand, or that is that affects Muslims in a very direct way, and that kind of impact of the secular sphere. If, if, if I can think, the, I think the most uh, important are if, if, if one doesn't want to accept the idea of the secular cultural sphere or the secular artistic sphere. At least I will say that uh, the, the secular as represented by science, scientific disciplines, or the secular as represented by the state uh, is something that Muslims have to somehow grapple with or they, ha- they actually do grapple with. And my argument is that when they start relating to these spheres as such, then they are implicitly and sometimes explicitly producing the secular. Uh, the secular is not something emerges in Muslim discourse as a separate sphere, but it, it does appear together with, with religion. So if I should want to take an example of that, I think which is uh, in my book that I develop much more clearer in that sense, because I don't see it as a sort of, I don't see secular as pervasive within Muslim societies. Uh, but nevertheless, I see that when um, Muslims speak about the state, um, there is an awareness that the state uh, functions, for example, 
uh, have to be somehow given an Islamic uh, background. So the assumption and the recognition is that there is a state which actually operates as a, as a very secular uh, institution. But then Muslim from the 1920s onwards wanted to um, insert and to say, well, we need to find a sort of a religious justification for that state. And I'm asking, uh, perhaps uh, sometimes I'm, I'm told I'm asking too subtly, but I hope that it is clear to the readers and then to, to the listeners to this program, that at the end of the day, they want to insert kind of a religious element to that which is secular. And I think one can see that throughout. They accept the idea, or they, or they work with um, modern sciences, for example, and then they ask, you know, can we now Islamize it in some way? And I think that kind of Islamization tells me that there is a secular operating within Muslims. Maybe it's a bit deeply embedded, but I'm using the opportunity to throw it out as such, or to bring it out, to say there is the secular that is operating within Muslim societies, and there is on the, there's a, only an ideological resistance against it, for various reasons, but there is, uh, at the same time, the way the religion is constructed in modern Islam sort of assumes that there is, there are these different uh, ways of, 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 there are these different spheres of these, these spheres of activity um, that, uh, that uh, particularly some Muslims, many Muslims feel that they should Islamize, that they should invest with the religion. But the fact is that they are dealing with things that are, that are quite secular in that way. I don't know if that is clear, but perhaps you can ask me a question on top of that, then I could maybe elaborate further. Yeah, no, I think that's, uh, that's great. And uh, in relation to that, so required by your title uh, and the, the nature of your work, um, you do have to tackle this idea of religion. And um, in the book, you do this by talking about uh, the term deen and the relationship between Islam, deen, and religion. And uh, there's two people that seem to be influential in your understanding of this, uh, Wilford Kendall, Cantwell Smith and Armando Salvatore. I'm wondering if you could discuss uh, this term, Dean, and then yes. how these two authors uh, influenced your understanding of that. Okay, uh, that's, that's also a good question. It sort of leads me on to what I, what I said earlier. The broader framework of my book is informed by Tala Asad and by, um, and by David Chidester. But obviously when one looks at um, you know, the, the, the history, at least the scholarship in Islam, then I think that uh, people like Wilfred Cantwell-Smith and Salvatore have, I think, made a significant uh, contribution to identifying um, this, you know, one, the, the uniqueness of modern Islam. Um, but I, I, I sort of take from them, but I also then depart from them in, in, a, in, a, in a substantial way. Um, so um, I think it's important to recognize what Wilfred Cantwell-Smith you know, already in the early 1960s in his book, The Meaning and End of Religion, and I think it was first published in 1962, uh, identify, made a distinction between religion and the religious as such. And I think that that, that analysis is what I take up in my book. But when, when in, in relation to Islam, I uh, sort of, uh, his, his, his identification that uh, in, from the 19th century onwards that Muslims think of Islam as some, 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 something set apart, something that, that one can attribute values to. Uh, for example, one can speak about what is the value or what, what does Islam say on women? What does Islam say on the state? Uh, this is a, um, uh, a, you know, his, his insight into recognizing that uh, is, was, is, is something very important for me as such. And I see that as the beginning of the production of a modern, modern Islamic discourse as such. 
but uh, why, 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 why my departure from Wilfred Cantwell Smith is because he actually says, well, let us move away from that because it's not really very um, beneficial for, uh, you know, deep uh, reflective thinking. It's not very beneficial for thinking about, uh, but for thinking about uh, um, what he considers to be the object of uh, 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 the reflections on religious studies. And I, I identified as a sort of a deeply theological uh, reflection that rather what we should be paying attention to is, you know, what, what is the religiosity? What is the religious behavior of Muslims? What is, the, what is, what is religiosity rather than what is religion? So what I take from Wilfred Kentwell Smith is this, this insight that, uh, that the, the discourse in the 19th century changes, you know, with a focus on Islam. And Muslims no longer say, for example, what does God say or what does uh, the prophet say? I mean, they continue to do that, but they no longer say, for example, when it comes to this is my particular legal school or my particular theological school, they all collapse it under Islam says this. And I think that's a major, uh, the, a major uh, transition or at least transformation. I'm saying that actually, well, I mean, I, I w- personally, I would maybe agree with Wilfred Cantwell Smith that perhaps you know, reification is not a good place to to begin to think about religion. Um, if I think about it, you know, I, I said in my book that, you know, I did think that that might have been a good idea. But one cannot deny that for the for the last 120 years or 130 years, Muslims have been doing this and they have invested a certain history on this reification. So my argument is saying, you know, reification might be, um, you know, too secular, that perhaps uh, for, for, for the position of uh, Wilfred Cantwell Smith, it is not really religious because it is a way of apologetics. It is a way of defending Islam. It's not really deep dealing uh, with individual beliefs and individual feelings and, and experiences, but it is a way of uh, thinking about Islam as something completely separate and therefore and matching Islam against everything else as such. And so I, I do. I do think maybe, maybe from a theological point of view, that might be problematic. But from a historical point of view, this is what Muslims have been doing. And so there is a history of reification that we should look at. Salvatore adds to this. He comes in much later, but he also picks up on Wilfred Cantwell Smith's argument. And interestingly, he shows that he argues that there is a dis- distinction. He also accepts the idea of Islam, but he points out that pre-modern times, Muslim discourse revolved around the idea of Deen. That, that the word deen as such, I mean, he, uh, I don't think he does a very extensive analysis, uh, but certainly in the, in the earlier experience of the history of Islam, he focuses on the idea that deen was a basis around which uh, a new civilization, a new culture is formed as such. So deen, uh, interestingly, is, uh, is, the, is the framework around which the discussion of Muslims takes place as such. And in the modern period, Islam takes the place of deen. And so he, in that sense, they, the two of them agree with that idea. But for Salvatore, sort of basically suggests to us the kind of difference as such. Now, I don't want to go into the merits of deen as such, but uh, because that might take us about thinking about what, what, how we can speak about a discourse in pre-modern Islam. Maybe that's a subject for another book. But uh, let me say what Salvatore says about uh, what happens to Islam in the modern world. Uh, so he's, I think he picks up, he sort of develops Wilfred Cantwell Smith's argument um, and suggests that uh, what you, what, that Islam as a, as, an, as, 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 a, as, a, as a term in this discourse becomes 
part of a global hermeneutical exercise, hermeneutical circles, he calls them, that over a period of 100 years, you know, Europeans are beginning to identify what Islam is. Uh, Muslims themselves are responding to this, uh, to this, to this identification. And there is a, there is a uh, sort of a convergence and a divergence uh, among different groups, Muslims as well as Europeans or Western people as such, to think about what Islam is and what Islam, what, 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 what is the meaning of Islam. So he's, in a sense, giving content to the meaning of Salvatore. Uh, now, I pick that up as such. I think it's significant. Where I depart from Salvatore is that I think he is uh, quite happy to see that, uh, that, the, 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 that Islamic modernism around this term, Islam, or let's, let's call it modernism of North Africa or the Middle East, because that is his focus, um, is a modernism of, Islam, modernism of Muslims or Arabs around the term of Islam. Uh, Islam becomes a basis for talking about liberalism or about authenticity and about identity. So he's actually, there's a kind of a mirror image between what happens in Europe uh, and, and, and what happens on the other side of the Mediterranean. Sometimes it is it, it's completely as reflective of this. You can immediately you can identify uh, discourses of identity, nationalism, authenticity, and sometimes you can see some divergences as well. Now, my uh, I'm I, I'm I think that um, I mean I don't disagree with him fundamentally on that. But I I when I started looking at the at the literature that that I've presented in my book on from Said uh, Ahmed Khan all the way up to. Uh, people like Abdullah and Naim, I think that there is not only a mirror Im image, but there is a kind of a divergence in the meaning of uh, of modernity among Muslims. That Islam, Islamic modernity as such, is very, very uh, is 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 not is not only a mirror image of liberalism and sec and secularism or liberalism in identity, but there are very distinctive patterns that are being developed by Muslims from the 19th century onwards, and that are then being shared across. So I think that, you know, I, I'm, I don't want to deny that there is this kind of an exchange taking place, but I think there is also a, a Muslim uh, discourse that is, that, is, that is quite distinctive from the dominant themes that you are getting from, from Europe as such. And this is how I sort of, uh, both Calvert, Wilfred Cantwell Smith and, um, uh, and Salvatore, I... Uh, depend on them I, I, I depend on them to, to to have identified these elements but I then depart from them by saying well let's let's look at you know on what basis is this discourse now developed and when I bring in the notion of religion then I begin to see uh, that there are fundamental uh, some some uniqueness in the in this um, uh, in the modern construction of Islam in the modern construction around Islam in those themes as such which I think are worthy of of uh, putting up uh, and that's what I've done in my book. Yeah, definitely, it's a it's a great contribution you've made. Let's um, let's move into some of these debates that you discuss. Um, you begin uh, geographically with uh, South Asian uh, intellectuals. You introduce us to Syed Ahmad Khan, Muhammad Iqbal, and Fazl Rahman. Um, why don't you discuss uh, some of the new challenges that are presented by modernity and how these uh, thinkers discuss religion in relation to those? Yeah. Okay, thanks a lot for that. I Yes, I started with India. I wasn't planning to do that initially. I thought my uh, expertise is much more in uh, in Arabic uh, and in, in Arabic uh, literature as well as in Islam in Africa. 
But uh, when I looked at some of the um, earliest uh, reflections by people like Said, uh, by somebody like Said Khan, Khan, I was actually struck um, by it, by what he was writing, and by the, but what, but, and also by what he was responding to. Um, I mean, one of the things that struck me about Said Ahmed Khan is what, he's one of the very first people, and one of the very few people I would I would rush to add among particularly uh, intellectuals who are working, uh, you know, and to, I'm not talking about people who are based at, uh, you know, universities, but I'm talking about, about activists, intellectuals, if I can call them them, or organic intellectuals, who basically, he's one of those few, actually, in a very early age, identified that, um, that modern scientific, uh, exp- uh, modern science as such, is very, very different from the scientific ex- enterprise of medieval Islam. Uh, because the usual understanding is that actually, you know, Muslims have, have, been, have contributed a lot to modern science. And so therefore, there's an assumption that there is a continuity uh, between uh, somebody like Al-Khwarizmi or somebody like Al-Biruni to, uh, to, you know, to modern, modern science, Einstein or so. And I think that um, somebody like uh, Sayyid Ahmad Khan recognized uh, there is a fundamental break between uh, Aristotelian science and then medieval science and then, and then modern science. And he also recognized the fact that actually if your uh, basic theology is founded upon uh, Aristotelian uh, um, principles, then you need to find new principles. Uh, you need to find new justifications for for Islam in the modern in the modern world. So that's that's the kind of things that I you know that that alerted my attention to say well you know it's very very significant and I don't my argument is that it's the Indian um, scholars who are consistently finding this. I mean obviously at the moment that this idea is uh, much more broadly shared as such, but. To get somebody in the 19th century to recognize that is, was something quite, uh, I think, intriguing to me, and I haven't seen that um, pointed to by any other scholar as such. Uh, and when if one continues with that, then uh, somebody like Muhammad, uh, Muhammad Iqbal as well, as somebody who uh, comes from obviously much more exposed to um, uh, European philosophy by Nietzsche and op- op- opposed to what one might call the, the sort of the anti. Uh, the romantic uh, philosophers, or I was going to say uh, anti-modernist uh, ones, but certainly the 19th century romantic tradition uh, that uh, um, Iqbal sort of inserts into his understanding as well. When you look at his reconstruction of religious thought, he's very much aware that you cannot, you, you, you can go back to um, uh, Rumi. I mean, he's fascinated by Rumi. You can go back to some of the earlier philosophers, but he's also aware of the fact that there is a major change and you have to fundamentally reconstruct uh, uh, religious thought. And Fazlur Rahman is equally, uh, I think, um, equally uh, uh, aware of, the, of this change as such. So it's a, it's a kind of an intellectual change that I've identified in this first uh, it's intellectual change coming from, coming from particularly from science and the, and the meaning of science that actually moves people, these three individuals, uh, to, uh, to, re- to, to, to offer a different interpretation of Islam. Um, another one of the challenges to discuss uh, that modernity brings is uh, colonialism, and uh, there's there's really no way for for Muslims in the modern period to to not deal with colonialism. So, um, what what role did religion play in formulation uh, the political impact of colonialism? Well, 
No, to be honest with you, I think um, this particular aspect of colonialism I see throughout in, in many different aspects. I mean, it's, a, it's still a very it's a, still a very dominant trope uh, in in Muslim understanding as such uh, the meaning of colonialism. Um, so, but I don't necessarily. Well, I, I may, maybe I could I could uh, identify it. I mean, maybe you know I've, um, I've written the book about uh, the book has been published about eighteen months, so sometimes I can forget elements of it. But thanks a lot for asking. Sure. I was well, just thinking about uh, where did I refer that to? Okay. Sure. Well, so <laughs> you, of, you introduce us to uh, Jamal Adin Afghani and Muhammad Abdul, yes. and how yeah, they okay. how they discuss uh, religion in, yeah. in no, this. Yeah, framework. thank you very much. As, as I was Sorry. thinking, I was like, now, now, where did I come across this? And by the time I came to the end of my words, I said, oh, yes, okay, that's my second chapter. <laughs> that's right. Because I also, I also dealt with the notion of, of, of politics as such, of the Islamic State, but that's a different chapter. Sure. Well, I think that the, um, the aspect, the, the, the reality of colonialism and the impact of colonialism comes up uh, very differently in the Indian scholars compared to what I would call, more, let's say, the Middle East and Iran. And uh, if one thinks, thinks about uh, um, Jamaluddin Afghani, Iran and Egypt as such. And I home in on Jamaluddin Afghani and Abdu in in one of my in my second chapter. And there I'm talking about a different approach to Islam. And that approach is actually very much uh, driven by a particular understanding of politics. Uh, particularly colonial politics as such. Whereas Sayyid Ahmad Khan reconciles himself to uh, colonial the uh, colonial hegemony or the colonial uh, state in India um, and one might add for example even though Muhammad Iqbal was much more a strident uh, political activist than Khan was but he also accepted the, the British presence in one way, in one way or another. Um, on the other hand, somebody like Jamaluddin Afghani and Abdu uh, uh, take a much more um, oppositional stand as such. I mean, they basically argue that uh, Muslims need to organize themselves and need to resist uh, colonial authority. And um, now a, n- a number of people did that. But what is distinctive about them, and that's where they ended up in, end up in my book, is that they also argue that um, Muslims have to, re- have to rethink the meaning of Islam in order to mount this resistance against colonial authorities and colonial power. And when I look carefully at uh, Jamaluddin Afghani and the work of Abdu, what I notice is they, they also engage in a very distinctive and a kind of a re-engagement of the meaning of Islam. Um, they, some of the understandings, I mean, they pick up from what has gone in the past, but what they insert in it is a very functionalist understanding of Islam. They basically think about Islam as a, as a political project, as a, essentially a political project, as a way in which Islam provides the basis for changing the society and also changing the social structure of the society as such. So by thinking about Islam as a means of resistance as such, they actually introduce some fundamental changes in the meaning of Islam uh, you know, for, Muslim, for Muslim societies, to the extent that today it might be impossible for people, somebody to say, uh, I remember a couple of years um, uh, um, ago when, when, when I had already written this, uh, this chapter and I was asked to present uh, some, of my, some of my findings to a Muslim audience, then I suggested to them that, 
um, that, necess- that there is uh, that, that in the past, for example, we might you, you could actually argue um, that uh, um, God's favor doesn't necessarily equal to political success because sometimes you can be actually uh, God can actually um, visit you with political failure in order to bring you back to the right path as such. One should not necessarily think of development equal Islam. That Islam doesn't necessarily mean that you would have economic or social development. Where I think, where I think what Abdul and Jamaluddin Afghani was doing is that if Muslims go back to Islam, then they would, then they would actually find in it uh, social and political uh, success. Uh, and they basically made an equation between Islam and political and, and, and success as such. And I then went into, in this chapter, I looked very carefully at the definitions of Islam and the way they, they looked at the foundations of Islam. And I argue within that book that every time when, 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 they, 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 when Muslims return to Islam, then they would actually get political success. If Muslims turn away from Islam, they would be actually visited with no political or no social success as such. And I and I'm taking the cue from religious studies to say that this is a, this was a particularly functionalist uh, approach, functionalist uh, definition of Islam. I also picked up on the idea that much has uh, there were in the 1960s. Um, Ali Kaduri, who has uh, written a, a book saying that uh, uh, people like Abdu and people like Afghani actually may not have actually be, may not have been believers that they had themselves had doubts about Islam, doubts of Islam as believers. They had probably, uh, you know, stopped believing what they were saying. And there was a lot of controversy about them. And there's still occasionally some controversy about what these modernists are. My argument was saying, well, that might or might not be true. Or at least I could, I could understand that. But what I was identifying from this was to say that this, this definition of Islam, this functionalist definition of Islam was actually a kind of a secular uh, approach to Islam, so maybe this is also where another way where the secular comes in. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the the meaning of Islam was uh, was less connected with an individual's relationship with God, with sacred, with belief as such, but directly connected with political political life and political commitment as such. And so therefore, there is this uh, what I was saying that secular comes together. Um, I gave another example about how the secular. Is emerges uh, in to be Islamized, but here you have the secular that that is it, it is very deeply embedded into an understanding understanding of Islam. Yeah, and then yeah. After the, in the next chapter you move on to uh, discussing the formation of religious identity uh, for these modernists, and then you and then, uh, compare uh, it with is some is Islamists, some, uh, specifically Hassan uh, al-Banna and Maududi. Can you discuss uh, this relationship? Yes. Yeah, I think that for me, it's um, it's it's, it's uh, for me it was also very something noticeable. I'm, you know, every time I was looking at these chapters, I was, as I said, attentive to, uh, in a very, uh, very explicitly attentive to when people would actually begin to say, well, this is what religion, this is the meaning of religion, um, and I'm always I was aware that. Uh, while I would find that in most cases, in, when, I, when you turn to Islamists, that you would not automatically find this because you would immediately find that actually Islam is not a religion. So you'd always have a, a denial of it. And how do, you, how do you go about doing that? Well, the first thing that I found is that uh, when, I, when I looked at Islamists, is the continuity between Islamism, between modernism and Islamism. And that continuity, which has generally been accepted now, but sometimes, I mean, especially in the, in the last 10 years or so, 
Um, they had, and when the difference between Islamists, Islamists because of their association with radicalism and modernists is, is often overemphasized, or at least it is, 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 uh, is, not, is, um, is not recognized as such. So the first thing I did was to show that when you look at people like um, uh, Abu Mawdudi and uh, even Hassan al-Banna, there is a very close relationship between them and their predecessors, the modernists like Sayyid Ahmed Khan or Muhammad Iqbal on the one side and Abdu on the other. So there is the, the discourses are very uh, are sort of in a way connected as such. But then when I more carefully looked at how um, people like um, if I take specific examples, I think it would be better to look at Hassan al I focused on Hassan al-Banna, um, Maududi, and Sayyid Qutb to think about how they spoke about Islam, how they wrote about Islam, and sometimes how they defined, and also in many cases how they defined Islam. I found that within their discourses, there was a very close connection between how they defined Islam as a, as a, as a, as a discourse of identity. Um, the one example that I can immediately remember that I can think of is somebody like um, Hassan al-Banna, for example, speaks about uh, in the 1930s, for example, begins to speak about uh, Islam as a cause. Um, and my, the word that he uses is Islam as a cause like other causes. It's a da'wah. So that would, one, one would think that the word, the word da'wah that he uses is you know, classical Islam, that it speak, speaks about mission. But he says that it is a cause like others, like da'awat, other causes. And when you follow through what he means by these other causes, he is referring to nationalism, socialism of the 1920s in Egypt at that time. So he's identifying Islam as a political project um, and with a distinct, uh, distinctive identity. So this is how I begin to see how the emphasis on identity from the Islamists begins at a very early stage, not, even, not only when we begin to see the, riot, the, the dominance of Islamists in the 1970s, already from the 1920s and 30s, this, that sort of comes up very clearly. Um, more importantly, on the second level, with all the Islamists, all the three that I've mentioned, uh, Hassan al-Banna, uh, Mawdudi, and Qutb, what you also see is the importance of the self. The individual as such is, is, a, is, is the, uh, for, for al-Banna, for example, he emphasizes quite extensively on the on the unique character of the Arab Muslims, and I must say that you know personally, as somebody from uh, you know from Muslim background myself, I was quite surprised at this. You know, because you always when one thinks about the normal discourse of saying you know in Islam race is not so important or. Uh, you know, it's not it's not so important to be thinking about you know the Arabs or is or, or, or South Asians for example um, within Al Banna and the the Islamists the Arab Islamists particularly Arabness plays a very important role and the Arab leadership of the Muslims as such is taken for granted it comes out in some of the earlier discussions and I think you see that through in other Islamists other Arab Islamists even including. Um, uh, Ismail Farouki, much later in America, in, in America uh, taking forward this idea of the leadership of the Arabs. But I see that as a as a deeply a deep issue of identity, uh, of of religious uh, kind of let's call it kind of religious nationalism. In this case, of an Islamic Arab nationalism, if I can call it, being inserted into uh, discourse of Islamists as such. But. That is, not the, that is not all that you find with identity. You also look further and you see that, um, particularly with Qutb and with Mawjoodi, 
there is a the self as such becomes very very important in this construction of you know what what is this Islamic cause this distinctive Islamic cause at the end of the day when we when you look at the at the discussion um, it, it 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 turns around that the individual self has to have a certain perception of Islam um, and that perception has to be deeply ingrained in, in the self as such so I. It, I, 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 um, I try to sort of follow through. It's much more difficult to perhaps put it uh, you know, explicitly without, without giving long quotations. But I think that the, um, for, for, for the Islamist identity, um, what was surprising to me, um, uh, because initially, I, I mean, one thinks about identity as external. Or the Islamist identity is external about putting on certain clothes and certain and put certain kind of Islamic uh, formulations of the state has to be, have certain Islamic trappings as such. I mean, those are, I'm not saying that those are not important for Islamists, but even before you come there, when you home in on, when, they, when, they are, when there are difficulties about how to reconcile Islam in the modern world, then they turn and say, well, this is, at the end of the day, you need to have an Islamic self that would actually be the main, uh, the foundations of, of, the modern, of, of, of the modern project. Whereas Hassan al-Banna, it is the self, which is the Arab self. Uh, on the other hand, when you sit down to Qutub and to, Maud, and to Maududi, and Qutub took it from Maududi, it is a self that is, that is somehow in tune with the laws of nature, with the laws of nature, which for them, for them are the laws of God. So human beings are natural, I mean, in the sense that they are part, they are part of nature, but they are determined by the laws of nature, uh, the laws of nature are taken from, uh, you know, from 19th century understandings of physical science. But then those laws of nature are then said to be exactly the same as scientific laws of nature. And therefore, at the end of the day, the human self is really an Islamic in a very deeper sense. It doesn't, what, I, what, I'm, what I'm trying to say is that it doesn't leave, it leaves very little space, I think. On the one hand, it sort of shows you how deeply embedded is Islam in the self. It obviously, from, a, from in comparison with maybe perhaps classical understandings of Islam, it leaves very little space for when is a person entitled to say you don't believe or you believe in something else. And I think the classical Islam, classical Islamic tradition, you know, while they might actually say that disbelievers are going to hell, but they actually also recognize that maybe God has a role in that in that place as well. Whereas the Islamists, in terms of this thinking of this identity, which is so deeply rooted in the self and which is Islamic, actually leaves very little space but for but for Islam and very little space for this for for, for self in any other way. And then, moving from the self, you actually go towards the state, and you discuss the, the meaning and the symbolism of the Islamic state. Um, here, you you introduce us to Ali Abdul Razak. Can you discuss how he talks about the the, the idea of a caliphate? Yes, uh, thank you very much for that. Yeah, I think that for me, Abdul Ali Abdul Razak is quite crucial, uh, not because um, not because he has been followed, but I think he sort of he sets up the the kind of problematic. Um, you know, he writes his book just soon at the end of uh, after the First World War, and uh, it is uh, you know a year or two before the abolishment of the caliphate in 1924 by the Turkish uh, Parliament. Um, and he puts up a thesis which has which was uh, which has been criticized and which continues to be criticized. Um, but um, I think that and let me say what it is briefly. Um, basically, he argues that 
um, that one should distinguish between uh, the religious role of the prophet and the political and his political role. And for him to make the distinction, I think, is, is something that, I mean, I, I literally became alert. Whenever some Muslim, make, Muslim intellectual makes that, as you might imagine right now, I'm sort of looking through and see what does it actually mean and what are the implications of that. So he makes the distinctions of what the prophet was. He tries to show where was the prophet. He tries to show from the Quran, uh, particularly to say what was the prophet as a religious leader and what was he as a political leader. And he sort of makes that distinction. And then he also says that post-prophetic political history has always been political and he does just use religion as such. So his thesis is that, you know, Muslims have, uh, as, as, as people who follow the prophet, they don't, should not actually be following him as a political leader. They should be following him in his religious capacity. And so therefore, they, he set up this practice that if in the modern world we can have a secular state, but we can still preserve religion, and religion and, 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 and state should actually be completely separated as such. Now, this thesis of his was, was entirely argued from, uh, from, from the Quran, from religious discussions. I mean, he was, has been criticized, as I said, he has been extensively criticized because he dared to say that, you know, there was no such a thing as a religious state in Islam, and religion and state are not, uh, are not, are not completely combined with each other. Um, I took that argument of his and actually tried to follow how a number of people responded to him immediately. Um, the, a number of people responded to him immediately, like um, uh, Rashid Rida. Uh, was also a um, famous Egyptian scholar, I just forget his name right now, who also responded and he wrote his PhD thesis on that. So he's one of the modernist uh, thinkers as well of Egypt. Uh, and then I also followed up uh, somebody like Khalid, um, uh, Khalid Muhammad Khalid, who wrote, wrote about that in the early 1930s. And then later, what I thought culminating in uh, Maududi's work on the Islamic State, uh, written in 1939. So I take a, a number of these um, uh, writings in Arabic, uh, on, in Arab world, as well as in the Indo-Pakistan world. Those are the two worlds that I'm working with. And I'm looking at how they are responding uh, to what I think is a thesis presented by Ali Abdul Razik. I mean, they, um, they, they, they don't all, all respond directly to Ali Abdul Razik, but I think that they are responding to the problematic that he has presented. The problematic is, you know, you have, uh, you know, you have a religious function in, in what he says, the religious function of the prophet, the religious, the political function. But I think the problematic is that in a modern society, I think the problematic that he raised is that you have a, you have a political state, you have a political state which is secular, and his argument is you don't need to give it any kind of religious uh, significance, you don't need to add any, anything religion to it, because it wasn't supposed to be like that in the first place. Now, the others who follow him, who responded to him, in my view, who respond to him, are interestingly because they reject his main thesis that you should combine religion and politics, I mean, they argue that it should be combined, but they try to find where religion should be. What is the location of religion in all of this in, in, in a new in a, in a modern state? And that I find is quite is, is, is fascinating because I think that that sort of shows me and I'm showing, I'm hoping you're showing to the reader that the state is actually has actually functioned in a very as 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 functions and its characteristics which one may you know one may say as are very secular. I mean it has. It exercises a certain amount of power, exercises legislation, 
excuse me. But, um, and the concern among Muslim intellectuals, modern Muslim intellectuals, is they say, well, where do we put it there? And if, if I could just take the example of, um, of Rashid Rida, for example, and maybe take the example of Maududi, just at the two pole ends, just to illustrate this. Um, somebody like Rashid Rida basically says, well, we, we shouldn't have it. We should, we should combine these things. We need a good religious state. We need a moral state. I mean, he makes those claims as such. But then when he speaks about the actual working of the state in relation to religion, he actually presents a very, very liberal state. He basically, in the state is, is actually open. Uh, what, what, what I think he does is that there is nothing that actually stays, stay, that, that, that really remains um, from religion in the, within the state. Because he says legislation has to be, it's, it's important that we need to have a kind of a legislative body and the legislative body has to be dependent on the Sharia. But then when he says, what is the Sharia? The Sharia is something that can actually be changed depending on the circumstances. That is his main argument in this book. So on the one hand, he wants to have a religious state, but when it comes to what is the nature of the religious law in the state, it's a very liberal, it's a very open, you know, uh, um, you know uh, open to change, open to change according to the circumstances as such. So I wonder, where is this religion going to be now? You know, where does this, according to Rashid Rida, I'm wondering, I'm asking him, you know, where does it actually stay? Is it only in the title of the state that it must be an Islamic state or is it in something else? Because it doesn't seem to be in the legislation. And so that's why I'm trying to follow through where do they, where do they want, they, I'm, I'm, I'm looking at Muslim intellectuals and I think that I would even argue that this is a continuing preoccupation of Muslims thinking about a modern state is where do you actually put religion in? Until we come to somebody like Maududi, who writes this very small tract, but a very influential tract in uh, the, the political, theory of, political theory of the Islamic state. And in this small booklet of his, he actually equates God with the state, where the state, the state apparatus becomes Islam itself or becomes God. It is a, you know, he's, there's a place for people to, um, to vote, there's a place for a democracy, but the, the, at the end of the day, the state actually takes the place of God. Um, I, I think one can actually say, I mean, I'm not in the business of uh, theology, but I mean, that's quite al almost like you can see where we start off from to say, well, we need a role for the state, but then you say, well, the state actually represents religion, represents the theos, represents the, the, you know, the force of God as such. And I think that that's, uh, I mean, obviously, I think that many people will reject that uh, association, that kind of distinction. But I think that it also opens the case for, for first of all, it was, I'm telling the reader that there's a, there's, there's, there are these variations, there's this kind of problematic that has to be addressed, but I'm also showing how the kind of totalitarian uh, elements of the modern Islamic state are being introduced by people like Maududi who don't want to accept the idea that, you know, maybe we should actually create some kind of separation. So in refusing to allow for a separation, he's actually going all the way to say, well, the state has to make a decision. The state makes a decision, the legislation or the head of state then makes a decision what is right, what is wrong. We're actually going back you know, perhaps to the Umayyad Khalifs who were, the, who were uh, authoritarian. I mean, we're going back to pre-Ma'amun, um, if I could bring in a sort of a medieval Abbasid politics. Um, you know, since the time of Ma'amun, it was very clear in Muslim society that um, 
there is political authority and religious authority are going to, uh, will, will, will be clearly be separated. And I see Mawjudi basically uh, trying to uh, breach that, or at least trying to destroy that kind of distinction. But where does he actually go to with that? Does he go to the caliphs of the Umayyads, which he rejects? Does he go back to the prophet? And can, actually, can, can you have actually a, a, a state leader today um, you know, taking on the role of the prophet? And that is highly problematic from a theological point of view, but I think that is the kind of um, you know, suggestions that are made by uh, certainly Islamists like Mawjudi when, they, when, they, when, they, when, they, when they're trying to answer the question that was posed by uh, Ali Abdul Razik. Um, then moving from the state, you, you discuss uh, how religion can be implemented through a legal code. Um, could, you, could you briefly discuss uh, kind of the positions of Af- Asaf Ma- uh, Faizi and Abdullahi Anayim? Yeah. Yes, that's, that's, you know, it's almost impossible to think about Islam without thinking about uh, the Sharia, without thinking about the law. Uh, so I'm, again, as in the other chapters, I'm um, start with the idea that there is a transformation of uh, the Sharia in, the, in, 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 in modernity, beginning with, uh, again, colonial um, you know, construction of the Sharia, particularly in India. Um, when the Sharia begins, is, is, is one of, uh, before I speak about these individuals, let me just say what I wanted to say was that the Sharia uh, is seen as law. As, uh, as, as, a, as a law of the state as such, as, as a law that's of the state that has to be, that is, that is equivalent to the legislation that comes from a parliament. And I think that is a association that was made initially in India in the, already in the 17th and 18th century with the British, and then it has been adopted by the Muslims you know, from in the 19th and 20th century. Um, so having looked at that, then I, looked, then I thought, let me look at um, at least two or three intellectuals to see what is their understanding of the Sharia and what is their understanding of law as such, to see where, how, they, how they basically construct, how do they, how do they reconstruct, how do they try to deal with this uh, notion of, um, of, of, uh, of Sharia and the law as such. Um, I didn't um, look at Sanhuri. I mean, that, that's the person that I wanted to say earlier. Sanhuri also responded to Ali Abdul Razik with, a, with his uh, a doctoral dissertation on the Islamic State. Uh, he was very similar to his, his position. Uh, he's, he's very, uh, very uh, self-consciously uh, um, modernist, um, but, but anyway, his position was very similar to Ali Abdul Razak. But sorry for the diversion. Let me come back to Faizi and Naim. Uh, Faizi and Naim are, are quite uh, interesting, I think, because in a way they are trying to resist this idea of Islamic law as legislation. I mean, uh, very similar to... Um, what I said earlier about um, um, about about um, um, Sayyid Ahmed Khan, who recognizes the uh, you know the impact of modern science, what we see with Faizi and Anna, they, they 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 see the distinction between Sharia and law, and they want to keep that distinction. Uh, and so both of them, in different ways, um, coming from at different periods of time. Faisi basically is a product of the British colonial, uh, uh, you know, uh, colonial history, is a product of India. And so he sees, in a sense, he actually argues, he sees the, the place of Sharia in the, in, a, in, a, in a legislature of a, of a state. So as far as Faisi is concerned, you know, the Sharia can be continued to develop. It is part of the state. 
uh, it has it, it can be developed within the state, but then it should continuously be developed as it was as, as it, to be developed as it was in the past before. So is uh, is sort of accepting the kind of uh, modern development of the Sharia, like many, uh, many like most other Muslims. But he is open to saying that it doesn't have to be fixed in, in a particular time. As a good modernist, he is actually thinking, no, the Sharia has always changed in the past. Therefore, in modern, modern legislatures, uh, one, the, the change should continue. Um, most more importantly, one can bring in new uh, ideas from human rights. One can bring new, uh, uh, new uh, elements from uh, uh, new, new principles of, um, of value as such. Uh, just like earlier Muslim scholars had had done in the past. For example, if one thinks about the maqasid of the Sharia, the goals of the Sharia were introduced, you know, late earlier by Ghazali and then developed by the Maliki schools in, in Spain, for example. Um, I mean, much has been written about that as well. Now, I think I'm using it as an example for Faisi to think that, well, now if one thinks about you know the British law of what they would what they considered repugnance as such, Faisi was not really you know, was not, uh, was phased by that. He said, well, you know, sometimes uh, laws that are coming from the past are repugnant to our modern sensibilities, and we should not feel afraid of changing them uh, in terms of what we think, what, what, are good, what, what, are, what, are good, what is the common good today. Um, but what is interesting about Faisi is that because he, while he accepted this, you know, Sharia as legislature, he also then wrote quite a number of essays to speak about how, you know, that is no longer religion that Sharia is legislature, and so therefore it's, he fully accepted the idea that this then becomes a very secular practice. But on the other hand, he wrote a number of interesting essays which were compiled in a, in a, in a collected book over, over a number of years, articles that he had written over a number of years. And within that, he basically espoused an understanding of religion that would, would and his understanding of religion is much more mystical, it is much more universal, but what I found interesting is that he's, that is to do with the self. So the so religion, the Sharia, in a sense, becomes legislative, becomes secular, whereas religion needs to be cultivated around the self. And it has to be, in his view, certainly much more going much more in the direction of, uh, you know, the, the philosophical or, the, or, or more importantly, the Sufi understanding of the of universal religion as such. Uh, for me, that was just quite a, a, an illustration about how um, modern Muslim intellectuals grappling with you know what what were the were the conditions of the time are then wanting to on the one hand separating okay that's secular and that is somewhat somewhat uh, in, in, in the important part of religion as such. On the other hand, when one looks at a Naim coming a bit later, he faces a bit more difficult task because he comes in at a time. I mean, he becomes active in the 1970s and he starts writing. Also, uh, in the context of the uh, an ascendant uh, Islamist campaigns from the 1970s onwards, which are demanding that the Sharia has to be part of the uh, part of the state as such, and he challenges that approach. He doesn't accept the idea of an Islamic state. He doesn't, unlike Faisi, he doesn't also accept the idea of the Sharia as legislature, but he puts the Sharia in the, in particularly within the context of the public sphere, and he says the Sharia should be the should be the the values that Muslims must debate, you know, extensively within within the within the public sphere. So, in his case, for example, he's also uh, also accepting this at least this kind of distinction between, you know, between a sort of a secular state. And he has since written a book 
which actually espouses this in a, in a, in a full, in a very significant way uh, to say that Muslims must accept an Islamic state, but the Islamic debate in the public sphere is a kind of a Haber, it takes a kind of a Habermasian uh, model of the public sphere. But the only distinction is that he thinks that in Muslim societies, Islam is, uh, Muslims would uh, actually be contributing to that debate from religious values as such. But when, when, when I look more closely at, at Naim, he also seems to be saying, while he seems to be conceding, well, in the public sphere, you have a debate on Islam, or you have a debate on all, all kinds of values. But when a Muslim or a Christian or a Jew enters the public sphere, he says that you need to argue on the basis of universal values as to what you want for the state as such. The state itself should never accept any particular religious argumentation. So he also tends to, uh, I think in his argumentation, tends to promote uh, religion at a highly individualistic, the religion is something that motivates you at a very personal level, at a highly individualistic, at at an interior level. In the public sphere though, you have to engage with universal rules, universal values, uh, in order to compete or in order to share a discourse with others or with, uh, in, or with either secularists or atheists or other, other, other uh, religious groupings and such. In terms of my broader analysis of this is that I'm, I'm, I'm showing Anaim to be, um, I'm showing Anaim um, and as well as Faizi to be actually turning towards the individual sense in which to promote a particular, under, uh, to promote an individual uh, interior sense of where the uh, cultivation of religion should be. Um, one of them accepting the Sharia as legislator, the other not accepting as Sharia legislator. But I think this particular chapter, if you, if you permit me a few more minutes on this, the political chapter will not be complete if I point out to a completely different example of Taki Usmani, who is a Diobani scholar, traditionalist scholar, one of the few traditionalist scholars that I've actually uh, uh, looked at more carefully, and I feel that I I should uh, uh, look at them a bit more carefully in future. But when I looked at Taki Usmani's understanding of Sharia as well, I also turn around and say, well, at the end of the day, he is espousing a very explicit religious identity in the Sharia. In the, he doesn't take the views of uh, um, Faizi or of uh, uh, Naim. But at the end of the day, he also espouses a very interiorized understanding of Sharia for the individual Muslim who is engaging in Islamic economic activity. So all in all, I'm, I'm, I'm arguing that when the Sharia becomes uh, directly or indirectly part of the, of the legislature, uh, directly as in Faisi, um, through the public sphere, but not directly as in, as in uh, um, Naim, and very explicitly as part of a Muslim community identity in the case of Turkey Usmani, uh, at the end of the day, the essence of the Sharia is become, has become much more has become interiorized in the, in, the, in, the, in the modern world. And I think this kind of interiorization of the Sharia is something that needs to be that one needs to look at a bit more carefully. I hope that I have made a case for that in this in this particular chapter. Yeah, no, I think it comes across very clear. Um, you you wrap the book up uh, discussing the role of Islamic feminism in. Uh, the modern Islamic discourse. Could you discuss that briefly? Yes, I think, thank you very much. For me, uh, Islamic feminists, uh, particularly the, the two that I've chosen, but also others as well, I've been reading, reading uh, about them, some of my colleagues and some of uh, people that I have read, mainly at uh, people who have been at, at universities uh, uh, in a number of places in the world. 
I've, um, I've, I've, I'm looking very carefully at them, and, I, and I'm, in this particular chapter, I think it, it comes together because they, uh, it, for, for several reasons. The one is, I show the, again, like I've shown for the others, I show the indebtedness to other Muslims. I take uh, the example of uh, Zinuddin, Nazira Zinuddin from, 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 uh, uh, from, what's his place name? <laughs> okay, sorry about that. Um, I was taking the example of this, um, you have to help me, Kristen. What is, um, uh, well, the one is I'm taking Amina Wadud from America, uh, and she's very, I think her ideas are very closely connected to Fazlur Rahman. Nazira Zinuddin, on the other hand, uh, in in the Levant, is closely connected with Abdu. Um, so the two of them, you know, in both cases they are. In one in the one case, for example, Nazira Zinuddin is uh, very much influenced, or she takes Abdu as opening up a new chapter for Islam in the Islam in the modern world for Arab societies, and she takes it forward. Uh, Amina Madud also. Um, picks up the ideas from Fazlur Rahman, his ideas about contextualism, uh, his ideas that, that the new context of modernity should ask us, should uh, call upon us to rethink uh, some uh, some values that we have. Uh, uh, actually, the, the, some of the explicit values in relation to women, in relation to non-Muslims as such, and minorities uh, in Muslim societies or Muslim states as such. So I I follow up both of them in their close relationship with these. Modernists, or these, uh, the, let me call them modernists for the moment. But I also show where they, in both cases, they show how um, they they not actually they actually show how they they significantly depart from them. In the case of Nazira Zinuddin, for example, I think she places a much more emphasis on individual conscience and religion uh, than what I have seen with Abdu as such. I'm not, I'm not saying Abdul did not worry about the conscience at all or did not say that, but in his formulation of Islam, as I, I see a much more functionalist approach to Islam. Islam is going to be good for the, uh, for the development of political society, whereas Nazira Zinuddin uh, is uh, very clear uh, in Lebanon, for example, that the particular um, Islam for her, for example, uh, at the end of the day, it's a conscience, it's her own conscience, it's her conscience. And she draws from extensively from early Islamic literature in order to support her argument that it's a conscience that will actually make a decision, make, make, make the difference um, um, as to what she does in a particular time. She was, in her book, she was arguing uh, against uh, the idea that uh, Muslims, uh, Muslim women should actually cover their faces in, in 1929. That was the thrust of a book. But uh, I, I was not so much interested in that debate as such about veiling, but I was more interested in seeing how does she actually um, context, uh, how does she actually situate her argument, and her, while she actually uh, goes to all the Quranic verses in order to show that women do not need to be uh, have their face veiled as such according to the traditions, she also at the end of the day uh, takes um, much more puts places much more emphasis on her as an individual believer. Um, well, do it comes in much later, and she's still writing about it. But I think that looking at, at her two or three books that she's written from 1990s, uh, I see her indebtedness to Fazl Rahman that she claims. But I also see the shift in Wadud from being uh, being, uh, being engaged in reading the Quran, uh, in in uh, deriving uh, you know something from the Quran, uh, reading the Quran in context, as Fazl Rahman had said, to a position where she is a reader. 
where the reader takes um, much more um, takes a much more dominant role than the particular um, the text itself. Uh, I was once asked about what is the difference between uh, aren't you reading all the time? So I, I, I think that uh, those who are familiar with this, this is this particular this is a kind of a postmodernist turn. I think within with, that Wadud brings to the study of Islam, um, a postmodernist turn which emphasizes um, the fact that you know it's the reader that makes the meaning rather than te- the text that actually gives something or the other. And Fazlur Rahman was very very insistent on the fact that the text actually can produce meanings. Wadud, on the other hand, is in many cases is actually going on the other side, is saying that I am giving meaning to the text as such. Now, for me, this this chapter sort of wraps it all together. Um, it, it wraps it all, the, the text, the, the, the chapter all wraps it together because I think in a way uh, it shows that in all of the chapters of the book, um, there is a very clear separation, there's a clear gap between Islam, uh, of, you know, Islamic discourse or maybe Islamic teachings that are inherited from the past and modern societies and modernity, if I can call it in this kind of, uh, you know, a comprehensive term. That modernity, meaning the modern state, modern science, uh, developments of uh, technology, the development, new, new globalization, uh, coming together of different peoples, of different people from different uh, values together. All of these pose challenges to uh, received understandings of Islam. And until I came to the feminists, I think that most Muslim intellectuals that I've read seem to think that Islam, you know, can, has the answer. Um, but I'm also shown that in order for Islam to have the answer, they've had to make some significant changes and significant uh, fundamental changes about, about how to think Islam. That's why they've reconstructed Islam in, uh, reconstructed the meaning of Islam in the light of all these challenges coming at them from all sides. Um, they've thought that basically if you can read the text differently, if you can take different elements from the text, maybe you can have a modern Islamic discourse. What I think the feminists do is actually say that there's a limit to how you can read the text. There's a limit to how you can adjust the text for the modern world. And so for me, the feminists Nazira and Amina would do it in very different ways. One of them emphasizing a deep sense of, um, you know, a, a sense of uh, individual conscience. The other basically saying that, you know, the agency is mine. I can decide what Islam is for me today. And that poses a very, uh, brings about a very different uh, dimension. It's, it's still part of the modern Islamic discourse, but it actually poses a very important challenge to what has gone for the rest of the book and also brings out the kind of, um, you know the, the kind of uh, unspoken problems that Muslims have been have been have, have actually been confronting, but particularly because of the issues of gender, those cannot be unspoken because the texts are so clear and so con- uh, and, and so problematic for uh, at least for some Islamic uh, for, uh, feminists as such. Yeah, I think you uh, you do a great job covering this, and I'm glad you you did include this at the end of the book. Um, now, we really have taken a lot of your time, uh, but before you go, could you just tell us uh, what new projects you're working on now? Well, you know, I'm, the, the one is that I'm continuing to, um, to, to work on, on uh, modern Muslim intellectuals. So that is, I think, after this book, I'm going to ha- continue with that. Uh, and I've been writing um, a, a number of articles that are looking at this. For example, I've been writing, I have written a, a, an article on Ismail Faruqi, that's going to come out in Newman uh, sometime this year. 
but I hope I'm thinking that, that that's something that I will keep in mind. Uh, I'm also working on a, perhaps a, what might develop into a sequel, but at the moment it's developed. It's, I'm writing this as an as an uh, as an art, as an individual article, which I will present at a conference uh, later this year. Is to think about the history of uh, modern Islamic thought and theology. Um, one of the things that I've noticed in my book is that I haven't looked specifically at at a at, at, at whether this, what I've written about in this book can actually be seen as a new theology. So I want to pose slightly different questions to, this, to, to these discourses, to these discussions, but probably look at some other people. But I'm, I'm fascinated by thinking about this. If, if, one, if one thinks about this as theology, then I think one can ask maybe medieval questions to these questions. What is a Muslim? What is a community? What is a society? And actually come up with a slightly different, at least maybe a, a sequel to this book. So that's the one thing I'm working on. The other that I uh, that I'm thinking about that I'm working or that I am working on at the moment is a study of Islamism, which uh, with which I actually started um, in uh, in of, uh, of the Muslim Youth Movement book in 1995. I'm extending that to other parts of Africa. It's a collaborative work, but I'm taking the leadership in that to look at uh, Islamism from a psychology of religions perspective. I'm looking at. Uh, I want to. I'm. I'm going to look more clearly at the meaning of religion for Islamists, so you can see the the link between again. But now I want to look at it from their biographical uh, biographical backgrounds. And in some cases, particularly, there's two projects. One of them is on Islam only, but the other is on a project that I'm working on on um, East Africa, particularly in Zanzibar, in Tanzania, and Kenya. Where, we, where I want to bring together both Christian and Muslim uh, materials, uh, look at um, both uh, revival, or let's call them, you know, uh, evangelical Christianity and reformist Islam, or revivalist Islam, or Islamic resurgence, and actually look at biographical, um, uh, uh, collect biographies of these particular leaders, and then compare them with each other. So I'm, I'm sort of, I'm, I think, I guess I'm. Uh, the one is I'm interested in uh, continuing this direction that I've taken in this book, and the other is to look at um, Islamism in, 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 uh, from biograph in Islamic Islamism and uh, is a religious revival in uh, individual biographical perspective. Sounds great. Um, Thank you. Yeah, thanks again for joining us. Um, we look forward to to seeing those new projects as they come out, and. Uh, I think I think your book is really wonderful, and uh, I think it's going to become essential reading both for people who want to know more about modern Islam, but also religion in modern society. So, thank you for your contribution. Thank you very much for having me on. And that was my interview with Abdul Qadir Tayyub, professor of religion at the University of Cape Town, South Africa, about his new book, Religion in Modern Islamic Discourse.